November 16, 1957, the first day of deer hunting season in the small town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. The men ventured into the woods seeking trophies. But our story takes a different turn. Early that morning, as the men pursued their quarry in the woods, one man was driving his truck into the otherwise deserted town. He pulled up to Warden's hardware store. Inside the store, the man was greeted by the owner, Bernice Warden. 58 years old, a beloved figure in the town. Bernice wasn't surprised to see him. Just last night, he was in. He told her he'd be back for some antifreeze. It wasn't that she didn't appreciate the business, but this man, well, he had been lurking around the store for weeks, and he had even asked her out, but she had declined. Everyone who knew him thought he was a bit odd, harmless, but odd. He requested a half gallon of antifreeze. Bernice obligingly filled the order and wrote out a receipt. The man left the store and went back to his truck, leaving Bernice with a sense of relief. Little did she know her relief was premature. The man immediately returned and entered the store once again, this time inquiring about a rifle displayed in the store window. When Bernice turned her back on the man, that's when it happened. The man shot her in the back of the head. He dragged her lifeless body out of the back of the store and loaded it onto a truck belonging to the hardware store. What mind commits these heinous acts, let alone in broad daylight? Several hours would pass before Bernice Warden's son, Deputy Sheriff Frank Worden, entered the store. He immediately saw a trail of blood on the floorboards, along with 22 caliber shells. Bernice was nowhere to be found. Frank, aware of the man that had been pestering his mother, immediately suspected him, Ed Gain. His suspicions were confirmed when officers arrived at the scene and discovered the last receipt Bernice had written out. It was made out to Ed Gain. At the very least, it would appear that Mr. Gain was the last to have seen Bernice. The police needed to question him. Little did they know what horrors lay ahead. A couple of lawmen found Ed having dinner at a neighbor's house. They arrested him and took him in for questioning. Meanwhile, another group of officers went to the Gain farm. Around 8 p.m., the officers arrived at the Gain farm. The house was locked, so they ventured to the back and began investigating a small woodshed. There wasn't any electricity on the property, so the officers were shrouded in darkness as they searched, their flashlights guiding their way. As the officers fumbled around in the darkness of the shed, one of them shined his flashlight on an object hanging from the rafters. At first, he thought it was a gutted deer. But upon closer inspection, they saw that it was a woman's corpse hanging by its heels. She had been eviscerated and decapitated. The head was later found in a burlap sack nearby. Her internal organs were in a bucket. Both officers stumbled out of the woodshed, horrified and sickened. They had found Bernice Warden. I'm Dr. J, retired demon hunter and knower of things. And this is the real demons of pop culture.
They're coming to get you, Barbara. I'll swallow your soul! Dr. J, that opening was very disturbing. Lucille, we haven't even scratched the surface of disturbing. The second half of the show will dive deep into Ed Gain, the psycho who inspired Psycho. Do I have to stay for that? Where are you going to go? You can move me. Well, if you're listening and wondering about Lucille, she is just ahead. I like to think that I am more than just ahead. You absolutely are. But for the listeners that don't follow us on TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube, they would be unaware of, you know, your, your condition. Sounds like those listeners need to head on over to the show notes and follow our socials. Yep, all the links are in the show notes. And while you are there, please help support the show. The Real Demons of Pop Culture is listener-supported. There are many ways for you to support us, from pay-what-you-can tips to merch like the Real Demons of Pop Culture coloring book. Speaking of, our number one fan Daniel picked up the Real Demons of Pop Culture mug. We love you, Daniel. Thanks for all your support. You know... Maybe if enough people support the show, one day we'll be able to afford a body for you, Lucille. Stop, don't play with my head. Well, it's up to the listeners. So listeners, will you support the show? That would be amazing. Lucille, I think we should have, what do you kids call it when you warn listeners that there might be some content coming up that might be disturbing to them? A trigger warning? Yes, a trigger warning. You want to handle that when it's second half of the show starts? Sure, I'll do it. Excellent. And now it's time for the magic number. Here's how it works. Dr. J will count down three, two, one. There will be a moment of silence while Dr. J thinks of a number between one and 50. Write down the number you think he is thinking of. I will reveal the number at the end of the episode. And if you get it right, you'll have an extra special magical day. But if you get it wrong, it'll just be a normal day. I hate normal. Hey, I don't make up the rules. The barista at my local Starbucks does. So here we go. Three, two, one. Okay, write that number down and I will reveal it at the end of the episode. The other day, I was listening to Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell. Yeah, I know the one from 1984 featuring Michael Jackson. Yeah, so there is this verse. When I'm in the shower, I'm afraid to wash my hair. Because when I open my eyes, I might find someone standing there. People say I'm crazy, just a little touched, but maybe showers remind me of Psycho too much. Yeah, good song. So I was wondering, Dr. J, are you afraid of taking showers? Me? Dr. J, the greatest demon hunter of all time? Afraid? Ludicrous. Fine, but many people are, and they cite the 45-second scene in Psycho as the reason. Which, by the way, took a week to shoot that 45-second scene. There are 78 camera setups in that scene. For our listeners who don't know, do you mind explaining what a camera setup is? Well, camera setup is when you actually take the camera and light the scene and put it at a specific angle. That's 78 times they had to do that. That is a lot for 45 seconds. Our listeners should check out the documentary film 78-52, which chronicles the making of that 45-second scene. And you have a connection with the director of that documentary film, right? Yep. Before anyone knew who the director Alexander Philippe was, he was on This Is Some Scene for his first documentary film before it was even made. He was just trying to get it made. The People versus George Lucas, which you can watch. I love that documentary. But I had him on my show twice, 
And recently, I just uploaded the second time we had Alexander on the show. And you can listen to that. And again, this is before any films were made. At this point, I think he has at least four documentaries. And definitely check out 7852. That's 78 shots, 52 cuts. That's where that number comes from. But a great documentary on the shower scene. That is super cool. Yeah, I think so. Dr. J, can you take us behind the scenes of the making of Psycho? I thought you'd never ask. Like most films often do, it all begins with the book. The book Psycho was written by Robert Block and published in 1959. Wait, 1959? That's a year before Psycho hit theaters? Yeah, Hitch got to action. Hitch? Alfred Hitchcock, the director of Psycho. Don't mansplain to me. I know what you meant. But Hitch, really? Isn't that what his closest friends called him? You might not know this, but Alfred Hitchcock and myself share the same birthday. I did not know that. Even still, you sound like a pretentious a-hole. Don't do it. Fine, Hitchcock. Much better. So the story goes, Hitchcock, he always read the New York Times book review, and he read the review on Psycho, and he told his personal assistant, Peggy Robertson, to contact Paramount and acquire the rights for the book. But Paramount was not into the story, and they would not cover the cost. So Hitchcock ended up financing the film himself through his production company, Shamley Productions. And he promised to make the film for under a million dollars, which is like super low budget for Hitchcock. And he succeeded. He shot the film in black and white. He stated that if he shot it in color, it would have been too gory. He also hired the TV crew who were working at Universal on Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, which, if you don't know, was a TV show. He wanted to see if he could make a feature film as quickly and as efficiently as he could make a TV show. And actually, a side note, there was talk that Psycho would have been a two-part episode on Alfred Hitchcock Presents if they couldn't do it as a feature film. They ended up spending $800,000 on the film, and it turned out it made millions. So he definitely reached his goal. There's a story that he had Peggy buy up as many copies of the book Psycho so people wouldn't know the ending. Peggy, Mr. Hitchcock would like to see you. Thank you, Alma. Come on in. Mr. Hitchcock, you wanted to see me. Oh, yes, my dear Peggy. I would like you to go out and buy every copy of the book Psycho. Do you mean in Los Angeles? Everywhere. The United States? Everywhere. Excuse me, Mr. Hitchcock, but globally there would have to be tens of thousands of bookstores and... Everywhere. I don't buy that. I swear I heard the same story about Jaws. Yeah, I heard that too. Who knows? There are a lot of myths in Hollywood history. But if anyone could do it, I guess Hitchcock could. He was powerful enough. Even so, the book did sell well. How much money did Robert Block sell the rights to Psycho for? He was offered $9,500 for the rights. What is that in 2023 money? How did I know you would ask that? You know me so well. Well, it would be about $100,000 in today's money. Jiminy Crickets. It could have been more. But the offer was anonymous. They believed, and rightfully so, that if Block knew it was Hitchcock requesting the rights, he would have held out for a lot more money. Heck yes, he would. So after whatever fees, I guess, were taken out, he ended up receiving $6,250, which is about $66,000 in today's money. Still nothing to sneeze at. So the making of Psycho was super secretive. People knew Hitchcock was making a film, but not which one. 
they would allow no visitors on the set. And once it was revealed he was making Psycho, he let everyone know he was casting for the role of Norman's mother to throw everyone in Hollywood off. I mean, this continued even after the film was finished. If you went to the movies to see Psycho in 1960, no one was allowed to see Psycho after it had started. Why is that? Spoiler alert. Janet Leigh, who was a leading actress, like huge at the time, well, her character gets killed off one third of the way into the film. Now, he didn't want people coming in late, sitting there waiting for Janet Leigh to show up, being like, hey, when's Janet Leigh going to show up? I haven't seen her yet. But she's already dead. So that was the reason. He also didn't want people missing out on all the fun because if you see it later, it's just not going to make any sense. Also, if you were waiting in line to buy tickets to see Psycho, there were speakers overhead playing Hitchcock's voice on a loop, warning people that they will not be allowed to enter once the movie starts. They even had cardboard cutouts of Hitchcock pointing at his watch. Lucille, do you want to read what it said on one of those cardboard stands? Sure. It reads, It is required that you see Psycho from the very beginning. The next showing of Psycho begins at insert time. The manager of this theater has been instructed, at the risk of his life, not to admit to the theater any persons after the picture starts. Any spurious attempts to enter by side doors, fire escapes, or ventilating shafts will be met by force. The entire objective of this extraordinary policy, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. Here's another one. We won't allow you to cheat yourself. You must see Psycho from the beginning to end to enjoy it fully. Therefore, do not expect to be admitted into the theater after the start of each performance of the picture. We say no one, and we mean no one, not even the manager's brother, the president of the United States, or the Queen of England. God bless her. I insist that you do not tell your friends the little... Um tiny, horrifying secrets of Psycho after you see it. I would also like to point out that Psycho is most enjoyable when viewed beginning at the beginning and proceeding to the end. Hitchcock was serious, and as we will learn during the making of Psycho, he was very much after getting an emotional reaction from the audience, and he didn't want anything spoiling his created experience. Wasn't there any press leaks? Despite all of his efforts, Variety and the Hollywood Reporter did leak information about the film before its release. Way to go, Variety and Hollywood Reporter. Jerks. But remember, it's not like today where things go viral online. If a spoiler comes out, everybody knows it the same day. That said, there weren't any early screenings for the press or VIPs. They saw it the same day that everyone else did. I'm sure that went over well. Some people speculate that the poor reviews that Psycho received was in retaliation to the press not getting to see the film before the public. They wanted their little special VIP screenings. Crybabies. I feel like we just glossed over the book. Yeah, we did. I'll briefly talk about the book while we discuss the making of Psycho. And that's just to talk about the differences. Sounds good. Let's get into it. So the first thing needed is a writer to adapt the book to a movie. And that would be Joseph Stefano. Not initially. They hired James Cavanaugh. But the treatment he sent was dull. Dull? How do you write a dull psycho? Hitchcock was then told all about Joseph Stefano 
But he was really hesitant to work with Stefano because Stefano was young and he was a new writer and Hitchcock didn't like that. What made him change his mind? He did agree to meet with him. In their first meeting, Hitch asked him how he saw the film. And it was Stefano's idea to begin with this affair that Janet Lee's character is having and to have her steal the money and to have this whole story revolving around Janet Lee. And that was just one of the ways Hitchcock and Stefano played with the audience. What about the book and Robert Block? Nothing. Block got his money, and according to Stefano, they never mentioned or referred to the book after that first meeting. So did Hitchcock develop the characters with Stefano, like motivation, dialogue, etc.? Well, the thing about Hitchcock, which some liked and others did not, was that he hired you to do your job. And when Stefano would ask something about motivation, he would just say, that's your job, Joseph. Janet Lee reported the same thing. Hitchcock said his camera is king. So like if his camera's moving, you have to move as the actor with the camera. And if you're an actor and you're like, well, what's my motivation to go over to the bed? He would let that be on you. You're the actor. Your job's to find your motivation. I don't care what it is to go over to the bed or wherever the camera is moving. Makes sense. Yeah, I think Hitchcock had faith in the people he hired to do their part or else you wouldn't be working with him. Would Hitchcock at least approve what Stefano wrote? And who is this Alma I keep hearing about? Alma is Hitchcock's wife. If she didn't like something, he didn't do it. She was so vital in the success of Alfred Hitchcock. I heard that Norman Bates in the book was quite revolting compared to the Norman Anthony Perkins gave us. Yeah, you heard correctly. The Norman in the books was a middle-aged, overweight, drinker, wore thick glasses, totally unsympathetic. <laughs> Sounds like a real creeper. Exactly. Stefano knew that once Marion Crane, Janet Lee's character, was killed, the audience would now be asked to follow Norman. So the audience needed to feel empathy for Norman as he cleans up after his awful mother. Yeah, right. Because at this point in the film, the audience doesn't know the ending, and so they would feel bad for Norman. Exactly. It's a genius setup. We think it is Marion's movie. She's having an affair that won't amount to anything. She steals the money, meets Norman, and now it's this sort of love triangle. Does she go with Sam from the beginning of the movie, or is she going to be with Norman, right? We think that's what's going on. And then once the shower scene happens and she is killed, the audience is like, what the F? It's not her movie. This movie's Norman's movie, and that's when we learn. Simply brilliant. And so when Stefano tells Hitchcock that Norman should be young, vulnerable, good-looking, you know, so you feel sorry for him. Hitch was like, how do you feel about Tony Perkins? And Perkins accepts. Yep, obviously. Question. In the book, it is Mary Crane. Why change it to Marion Crane? Seems a little weird. Such a small thing. Apparently, there was a real life Mary Crane who lived in Phoenix where the beginning of the film is set up. And so I guess they didn't want to ruin that woman's life. Yeah, lots of weirdos who might think it is based on her or something. So Stefano goes through several drafts, and the first one he gives to Hitchcock, according to Stefano, that's the one they shot. Okay, script in hand, what's next? Storyboarding. Saul Bass, who also did the titles of the film, storyboarded the film for Hitchcock. Hey, I heard that Saul Bass directed the shower scene, true? Them's fighting words, Lucille. No, he did not direct it. But didn't he say he did? Yeah, after Hitchcock passed away... He did say this, maybe he meant that he had influence on the scene. Because remember, he did do the storyboard, and the way it was shot was following those storyboards, the angles and everything. 
Just another kooky artist, I guess. Every interview with anyone who was on that set said that Saul Bass absolutely did not direct the shower scene. And it's not like anyone would have missed that. The scene was shot on a very small, very confined set, 12 feet by 12 feet. And that scene, as I said earlier, took a week to shoot. That's like one third of the three weeks it took to shoot the whole movie. So they had plenty of time to have seen in a small space whether Saul Bass directed, which he did not. Let's talk about the famous shower scene. I'm sure our listeners want to hear all about Janet Lee's experience getting naked on the set of Psycho. Well, sorry to disappoint, but she didn't get naked. All Janet Lee's camera shots were above the neck. And just in case, she wore a strapless dress and had the juicy bits covered up with moleskin. Remember, it's 1959. You're not allowed to show nudity. Heck, you weren't even allowed to show a belly button, but Hitchcock got that in there. I wish I had a belly button. Uh, maybe someday if our listeners support the show. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Okay, back to the shower scene. This entire scene had to be done without any nudity. When we see any body stuff, it is her body double. So Hitchcock hired a pinup model because he figured a pinup model is not going to be like uncomfortable being naked in front of everybody. The pinup model met with Hitchcock. She had to disrobe. Then she had to meet Janet Lee and disrobe next to Janet Lee. Guess they had to see if their bodies were like, even though Janet Lee was dressed and she was down to her underwear. I don't know. It's kind of weird, but it worked out. And this woman is Marley Renfro, and she was a big part of the scene. You know, anytime you see a shot with Janet Lee and neck up, that's Janet Lee. Any other shot is Marley. Even when Norman drags the body, wraps the body up, dumps the body into the trunk, that is all Marley. Way to go, Marley. How did they shoot the shot of Janet Lee's eye? Did they use contacts? No, that was all Lee. They tried contacts, but as it turns out, back then, the contact technology, I guess, was not so advanced. So it would have taken her six weeks to get used to the contacts. So they weren't going to do that. And she just had to lay there without blinking. To speed things along, Lucille, do you mind reading the list I gave you? A bunch of quick tidbits about the shower scene? Absolutely. Um, let's see here. They used chocolate syrup for blood. There were tanks of warm water on set to keep the actors comfortable. True or false? They used cold water to make Janet Lee scream? True. False. The shot of the toilet was the first time in cinema history that a toilet and a toilet flushing was ever in a film. The shot of water coming out of the shower head was designed precisely to have water coming toward the camera without getting water on the lens. Yeah, in fact, the shower scene was so well planned out that the hardest part was actually getting each camera set up correctly and lit properly. Remember that it's the cinematographer doing that 78 times. It's a lot of work. They used melons for the stabbing sound effect. <laughs> melons. So childish. When they pull the camera back from Janet Lee's eye, that all had to be done with manual focus. Autofocus wasn't a thing. Tony Perkins was not around all week. He was in New York. Uh, he didn't have to be there. And so it wasn't him dressed as mother in the shower scene. There were a couple different people who dressed up as mother. And how about that music? Yeah, the music is by Bernard Herman, a genius composer. It's really its own character. Next time you watch it, listen and notice that the only instruments are string instruments through the whole soundtrack. Herman said he wanted the score to be a black and white score to match the film. Here's a bit of Star Wars trivia for you Star Wars fans out there. In the 1977 Star Wars movie, when Han and his buddies are hiding in 
the smuggling compartment on the Millennium Falcon and the stormtroopers come aboard to inspect it. When the stormtroopers leave, they pop up from the smuggling compartment. You'll hear three notes. Anyway, those three notes are the three note motif from Psycho. It was put in there as an homage to Bernard Herrmann's score in Psycho. Janet Lee claims she never took a shower after shooting that scene. Do you believe that? Yeah, no, I don't. She claims she never realized how vulnerable and defenseless you are in the shower until she shot that scene. And I agree with that. But do you know what is even more vulnerable and defenseless, Lucille? No. Sitting in a bathtub. I mean, all those people who claim that they can't take a shower after watching Psycho, are they just running around the world smelly? I don't think so. So are they taking a bath? At least I'd have a fighting chance standing up in a shower versus trying to get up in a bathtub. I agree, and I don't even have a body. When the scene went to the censors, one of the censors claimed to have seen a breast. Oh my, not a breast. But upon review, there was no shot of the breast, which is this is part of the genius of Hitchcock here, that he cuts it in a way that the scene allows us to fill in the blanks when we're watching it. Let's talk about that ending. Ah, uh, yes, the great reveal. And if you don't know the ending, there will be spoilers. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. In the end, Vera Miles goes into the fruit cellar, sees the back of mother's head. She puts her hand out, touches mother. It turns around. She screams when she sees the skeletal remains of mother, hits the light overhead. A lens flare happens. And that's intentional, that lens flare. They actually shot it. And Hitchcock's like, did you get the lens flare? And the cameraman's like, yeah, I did. And then when they watched it later, there was no lens flare. So they had to go back and do it again. So then Norman runs in, dresses mother, and the entire struggle between Norman and Sam was choreographed just right so the wig and the dress would come off at just the right time. Bernard Herman's strings from the shower scene return. A great surprise ending. And mother, what an awesome prop. Apparently the way Hitchcock decided which mother was going to be used in the film was that they would take the mother prop and put it in Janet Lee's dressing room and he would listen to see how loud she would scream and whatever got the loudest scream was the one they chose for the movie. What a card. And then we have the psychiatrist speech. Which Hitchcock called a hat grabber. What does that mean? Well, in 1959, everyone wore hats. The hat grabber was someone who wouldn't stay for the end of the movie. They'd grab their hat and leave the theater. But Stefano convinced him that it was necessary to keep that in the film. And people were invested enough to hear the reasons behind Norman's behavior. And so Stefano was right for keeping it in the film. Didn't the production code get upset with something in that final speech? Yes, they did not like the word transvestite. They thought it was a dirty word. But Stefano, who apparently can convince you to do anything, convinced them to leave it in and saying it's a scientific word. So there's no reason to take it out. Why were people so uptight in the 1950s? I know, right? The movie ends with the voiceover of Mother's Voice, performed by Virginia Gregg, leaving us to believe that Norman is gone for good. Mother is all that is left. Great ending. She wouldn't even harm a fly. Love that line. So now that we are going to go behind the screams, it would be a good time for that trigger warning? Yup. Trigger warning, child abuse, murder, human bodies as an art medium, necrophilia. Oh, God, what are we getting ourselves into? My first question is, why are we doing Psycho? How is Ed Gain a real demon of pop culture? Well, demon's like an umbrella term I use for this podcast. It could be a monster, a ghost. Even Greek gods have been on this show. 
And in this case, it's a human monster. So in season one, I did an episode of Jeffrey Dahmer. This season, it's Ed Gain, the butcher of Plainfield, who inspired not only Psycho, but also the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Silence of the Lambs, Deranged. There are so many. House of a Thousand Corpses, all these pop culture movies, all inspired by Ed Gain. Lucille, read the list I gave you of the other names that Ed Gain has been called. Fine. Here we go. Eddie the Mad Butcher, the Plainfield Ghoul, the Plainfield Butcher. Thanks. The opening was the story of Bernice Warden, Ed Gain's last victim. Despite the gruesome discovery that the police officers stumbled upon, nothing could prepare them for what they would see next. It wasn't in the story, but after Ed Gain drove the truck, it was the hardware store's truck, to his farmhouse, he still had to get his truck, and he walked six miles to the hardware store to go get his truck. So that's pretty intense. Now, when the police entered the farmhouse... I don't think I am prepared for all the grisly details just yet. Can we save that for last? How about we start by answering the question, who is Ed Gain? Yes, I guess it would be better to try to understand Ed Gain as much as anyone can understand him before we reveal the ghoulish criminal activity. Where and when was he born? He was born in 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, to his mother, Augusta Gain, and his father, George Gain. I'm guessing they aren't winning any Parents of the Year awards. Well, many people have crappy parents, but they don't end up doing anything even remotely close to what Ed Gain did. His mother, Augusta, was mentally ill, and his father was an alcoholic and violent. What a combination. So his father, George, was unreliable. He would beat the children, and they lived in such a remote area that as a kid, you got to think, there's nobody coming to save me. There's nobody that is going to rescue me out in the middle of nowhere from this hell that I'm living in. How about his mother? Well, the mother was better in the sense that she wasn't violent. But she was cold and she was a control freak. She grew up in a strict Lutheran household. She was a religious fanatic and was obsessed with the sins of the flesh. So even though lacrosse was not this New York City, Manhattan type city, she still thought of it as the Midwest Sodom and Gomorrah. And she wanted to get her family as far away from that sinful place as possible. So she convinced her husband to move the family to Plainfield, Wisconsin. And it was a very poor community they lived in, but it was just far enough away from Sin City. Ed would have been constantly told that women and sex were evil. He was told to avoid temptations of the flesh. And Ed adored his mother. She was a saint. He became an extreme pathological version of a mama's boy. And in the 1950s and earlier, being all about your mother was looked upon as a virtue, right? Well, I think loving your mother is normal. What we're talking about is a much sicker, kind of like a pathological incest. Was it an incestful relationship? We don't know the answer to that. But one thing we can say about Ed Gain is that there is nothing he would not be capable of. As we move into his crimes, we'll be able to see how this pathological connection to his mother was key to the crimes that he committed. So sad. I agree. I don't even know if this poor boy ever even had a chance. What about his brother? Couldn't he have helped him? So in 1940, the father dies from alcoholism. Shortly after that, his brother Henry was almost like drafted into the war because it was World War II, but he wasn't accepted. Now, the boys, they were working odd jobs, so there was no financial strain because the father had died. 
So they didn't really miss the father at all. But Henry could see through his mother and won it out. And he tried to get Ed out from under her domineering thumb. But he couldn't? The intimacy between Ed and his mother was just too emotionally and psychologically embedded. And as I said earlier, we don't know if there was any physical or sexual intimacy, but we can't rule it out. So did Henry escape at least? No. Ed and Henry were in their early 40s at this point, and Henry had a girlfriend who had a child. This was like against everything the mother had taught them, and I'm sure Ed was equally as upset, either because he believed that his mother was right, or maybe he was jealous of his brother, that his brother could leave, that his brother could get out of this, that he could be free from the psychological enslavement that his mother had over them. Oh no, what did Ed do? So many believe that Henry was Ed's first victim. There was a brush fire on the farm. Ed runs to get help, saying he didn't know where his brother was. But then he takes the police right to where the body is. And there was a bump on the back of his brother's head. They eventually say Henry died from a heart attack, I guess, while he was in the brush fire. And that was the end of that. But many still believe that that was Ed's first victim. That is so sus. It's totally sus. And now it's just Ed and Augusta. That can't be good. Nope, it wasn't. Especially because shortly after Henry's death, Augusta had a stroke. And now Ed's caring for her. She's bedridden. He's dressing her. He's feeding her. And in some ways, this is exactly where he wants his mother to be. She is with him. And he would like sometimes get into bed with her and lay next to her as she was bedridden. So yeah. How long did this go on for? Not long. His mother died about a year after Henry. Now he truly is alone. Did he have any friends? Nope. He had one close relationship, and that was his mother. His mother was everything. Like that line in Psycho, a boy's best friend is his mother. The more you know about Ed Gain, the even creepier Psycho gets. Is this when he snaps? Yeah, pretty much. He was convinced that he had some special power to resurrect his mother. He would go out to the grave at night and pray over it. Did he dig up his mother's body? No, there's two theories as to why. One is that her coffin was encased in concrete, so he just couldn't get to it even if he wanted to. The other is that he was just so frightened of his mother that he wouldn't dare resurrect her, or not resurrect her, but uh, body snatch her. I can see either reason being true. So now he's living alone. He's living in squalor. His mind is like descending into some deep, deep sick stuff. He's reading books about Nazi atrocities, how they would make different things out of the flesh of humans. And he's reading pulp magazines that include things like headhunters, some really disturbing content. You know, not everyone should take up reading. Yeah, he was a voracious reader. And mostly I would say that's a great trade in a person, but not so with Ed. So when does he start killing people? He doesn't begin with killing. He becomes a body snatcher. Now, the theory is that he can't resurrect his mom, so he steals bodies of women who he thinks are like his mom. Proxies, if you will. Gross. The first body was that of Eleanor Adams. Would he dig them up and take them home? Not always. Most of the time, he would take parts from the bodies and take them home. So he would dig up the bodies and cut off their... He'd take their heads, feet, genitals, whatever he needed. Needed? Needed for what? He would take the skin off the heads and make masks. He made gloves from the flesh of hands. Okay, enough. How would he choose his victims? 
He would read the newspaper. After a funeral, he'd go to the grave at night. It was easier to dig up the fresh dirt because it was still soft. So he was repurposing body parts? Exactly. How could he live in a house surrounded by all these ghoulish things? Well, it's believed he felt that he was surrounded by people. He wasn't alone. And because of this, uh, it gave him a sense of control, of domination over these people, what he could do to them. And this was arousing for him. I hate to ask this, but did he have sex with the bodies? He denies it. But like I said earlier, it's highly possible because Ed Gain was capable of anything. I think I'm going to get sick. Then I probably shouldn't tell you what they found on the stove. Oh, no. What? There was a heart in a frying pan on the stove. If I had a stomach, you would be seeing its contents right about now. That's not the worst of it. What could be worse? He used to give his neighbors meat, and they assumed it was venison. But Ed Gain did not hunt deer. I'm sorry I asked. So you are telling me he gave his neighbors human meat? This is the 1950s, a time when many people now look back at it as an idyllic time. And it wasn't. This did mess with the psyche of America. I mean, your meek, quiet neighbor could be hiding a ghoulish hobby in his home. Why is he doing this? The loss of his mother was so devastating to him. I think he was trying to keep her with him. He was trying to become his mother. He was so obsessed with a case about a soldier who ended up getting a sex change. It was Christine Jorgensen. And there are even stories that he wondered what it would like to be a girl when he was young. He wanted to transform himself to feel closer to his mother. Didn't he keep his mother's room like a shrine? Yes, although the house was in complete disarray, there was clutter, garbage, dirt, decaying bodies. His mother's room was perfectly preserved, closed off, pristine. Norman Bates did the same thing. But the real project, the ultimate goal, was to make a skin suit, just like Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. Why would anyone want a skin suit? He would become more intimate with his mother or even become mother. So when did he begin killing? Either he was running out of bodies or it just didn't do it for him anymore. And he needed something fresher to make the skin suit. So his first murder, Mary Hogan, what do we know about her? Well, she was the opposite of his mother. She ran a roadhouse tavern. She was foul-mouthed. She's like the bizarro mother. She went missing in 1954 and investigators revealed that there was a struggle that took place in the tavern. There were chairs knocked over, there was blood on the floor, there were shell casings. But it wasn't until 1957 when they took Ed Gain in that they realized he also murdered Hogan. But didn't he say he didn't kill her? He kept denying it. And they were like, Ed, we found her head in your house. So I guess at that point, he just opened up and told the police everything. Yeah, he doesn't actually implicate himself when it comes to the really bizarre stuff. He would say something like, I must have, but I don't remember. Did he at least show any remorse? No. In the interview on the night that he was arrested, he shows no emotion. He talks like everything is a non-event. So should we tackle the list of revolting things found by officers when they went into the farmhouse? Do we have to? We promised the listeners. Fine, for the listeners. But let's switch back and forth so neither one of us has to read all the grisly details. Okay, I'll go first. Here is the list of things found in Ed Gaines' farmhouse. Whole human bones and fragments. A wastebasket made of human skin. Ew. Human skin covering several chair seats. Skulls on his bedposts. Female skulls, some with the tops sawed off. Bowls made from human skulls. 
a corset made of a female torso skinned from shoulders to waist. Leggings made from human leg skin. Masks made from the skin of female heads. Mary Hogan's face mask in a paper bag. Mary Hogan's skull in a box. Bernice Worden's entire head in a burlap sack. Bernice Worden's heart in a plastic bag in front of Gaines potbelly stove. Nine volve in a shoebox. A young girl's dress and the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old. A belt made from female human nipples. Four noses. A pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. A lampshade made from the skin of a human face. Fingernails from female fingers. That was just nightmarish. Horrific. Revolting. Grisly. Gruesome. Ghoulish. Shocking. That's Ed Game. So how are you going to tell me that Buffy did this? Remember, I'm not saying that they had anything close to Ed Gain on the Buffy episode, but Buffy did have quite a lot of human monsters. So yeah, Buffy did this. Hello, I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and yes, Dr. J is correct, I did do this. So the episode I picked for Buffy did this is Villains. It's season six, episode 20. The human monster is Warren Mears. And Warren begins as a nerdy villain. He's got like his little team of nerds. But by this episode, things take a deadly turn when he tries to kill Buffy with a gun. And the gun ends up killing Willow's girlfriend, Tara, who is played by Amber Benson, who I did interview on the podcast. This is some scene which you can go listen to. It's up. Now, Willow freaks the F out, and when she finds Warren, she flays him. And I thought the flaying part, that's why I picked Warren, because there's other human monsters on Buffy, but Warren actually gets flayed by Willow, and I thought that was a good connection to Ed Gain. Now, I wouldn't just watch this episode unless you already have been watching Buffy. If you have been watching, if you already watched everything Buffy, then yeah, go revisit this episode. If not, it's much more enjoyable to watch the evolution of Warren Mears to get to this point. So there you have it, just one of the human monsters that show up in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, I approve it. And now it's time for the magic number. I guessed 45. Nope, the magic number was 49. Oh, so close. And that's our show. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend and give it a five-star rating. Don't forget to check out the show notes to support the show. Please support us so I can get a body. We'll be back in two weeks with The Exorcist and The Exorcism that inspired it. So make sure you watch the original and the new one will be out soon. So check that one out when it comes out. Until then, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube to learn even more about Psycho and Ed Gain. Peace. Bye-bye. Be sure to follow me on TikTok at James Ippoliti. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. The Real Demons of Pop Culture is a Gorilla Delphia production.